One Hope Church. All right, good morning on this holiday week. And uh, hopefully you had a good Thanksgiving. And uh, you're not still sleepy from all the turkey that you ate. <laughs> so... Um, Okay, so today we're going to go in back in Nehemiah. We're going to pick up in chapter 7 um, and verse 4. And so this morning we're actually going to try to tackle a lot of, uh, of verses. We've got about 125 verses. I'm not sure that's a record. We've got about 125 verses this morning. So we're, going to, we're just going to go through that um, you know, really, really strong this morning. So uh, buckle up and uh, get ready. Now, we're going to make that a little bit easier because um, in chapter 7, verses 4 through 73, there are a lot of names because Nehemiah um, basically takes a census of all the people who had come back um, out of the um, exile and were in um, Jerusalem, and he wants to um, you know, establish them according to their, their families, you know, back, their original um, you know, tribes and, and how things would have been um, divided up. And so he says the Lord laid it on his heart um, to do that. So the Lord has not laid it on our hearts this morning to read all of that. You can go back and read that um, on your own later. So that's uh, that's seven, about 70 of, of the verses um, there. So we just, we're like, whew, oh, I'm glad. All right, so we're going to go to chapter 8. Verse 1, it says, well, we'll pick up this morning. But let's go back again to Lord in prayer, and then we'll, we'll start reading. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning, to look into your word, and we um, thank you for those of us able to be here today, and for those of us who are out on holiday, we pray, Lord, that um, you would be with them and strengthen them. May all of us be united in your Son, Jesus, and through your Holy Spirit, and help us to um, be moved by your word this morning and to be inspired by it. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. It says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Um, stop there just for a minute, and there we, you know, we realize that Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries. Ezra had come actually about 14 years um, earlier uh, to Jerusalem and had been, um, you know, teaching the people the law. He went back with the purpose to teach the people the law. Um, but it's not until, you know, Nehemiah comes that the wall is rebuilt and then you have, a, you know, this, this kind of great revival that takes place um, but I, I, I wanted to say this morning, it, you know, Ezra had worked for a long time. He had pl planted a lot of seeds. He had tilled soil. He had 
you know, worked hard. And so without that, I guess there's just a question for us this, this morning. Without that, does Nehemiah um, receive the willingness of the people to work and, and to trust God and to take steps of faith and then to be confronted by their sin and to, to turn from it? Um, if Ezra hadn't done his work of preparing the soil. And so I, I think that that's a, a great lesson for us because I think sometimes, you know, we can, at different points in, in life, we're, we're the ones who, you know, have to till the ground and, and put seeds out. And, and other points, you know, other people have to tend to that and, and other people then have to reap, you know, harvest. And you know, sometimes we're the one who, ones who get to reap. But we shouldn't be discouraged because we don't know, the t- know, know all the timing um, of the Lord and, and of the work. Um, Bill, could you hop over there and, and try to take that, that uh, twinge out that's kind of hurting people's ears? It may be a little loud. Yeah. Yeah. You may just turn it down the spec. All right. Can everybody still hear me? We're good? Okay. Thank you, Bill. I was seeing, I was seeing a lot of ooh, ow, pain in people's ears. Um, don't want you to have to deal with that for the for the next bit. So, all right. Um, but that was just that's just an encouragement for us this morning. That whatever our our place in Tom, you know, is and whatever our role is, you know, just keep you know plugging away. What if after you know ten years, Ezra had been like, you know, we're just not making as much progress as I I thought we'd make by now. I'm out. You know, then what's what do we have in the story? And so that's just a real, um, I think that's a real encouragement for us this morning. So back to verse four, it says, "So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood Mattiah, Shema, Ananiah, Arijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, and at his left hand Padiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, Hashbanadon." Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And he, when, when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Let's stop there for a minute, um, you know, because this was, you know, they, they had a plan in terms of, you know, they made this big wood platform a place, you know, where, where Ezra could get up and he could read and the law and he could be heard, you know, by a multitude of, of people, you know, and, and obviously they had planned, you know, this day that this would happen and the people knew about it and, and came um, so that part was planned. The responses are not planned. You know, there wasn't anything in a program that said, at this point, you're going to, you know, stand. At this point, you're going to lift your hands. At this point, you're going to bow down, you know, and worship. But they, but they did that naturally. As, you know, as the Spirit of God moved in and worked you know, among them. But it also shows that our, you know, our physical bodies are important in worship. 
you know, our, our physical bodies are important in worship. Um, and sometimes, and, and I think it goes both ways, I think sometimes, you know, our, we're, we're, we're there in the spirit and that forces our bodies to respond in a certain way. It's always, we're almost like compelled to, to raise our hands or compelled to get on our faces. Other times, I think we, we put our bodies in a position, particularly like face on the floor, in order to get our hearts there. Like we know, like my heart is not bowed down. Well, let me go ahead and put my body in that place because I can get my body there quick, more quickly and easier than I can my heart. So I can get my body there and then you know, I'm going to pray and ask God for the strength and help that my heart would follow. So I think that can go both ways. So I'm not saying, so I don't want you to misunderstand this morning and say that you shouldn't, you know, unless you're really feeling it, bow down or something like that. Because I, I, I do think that can be advantageous, you know, in, in different, different ways. Now, of course, what we don't want to have is, you know, something that's just intentionally fake, which is, I'm going to bow down or raise my hands or do that just so other people will think that I am worshiping. You know, that there's, there's not a place for that, you know, anywhere. And, and Jesus actually condemns that, you know, pretty, pretty strongly. Um, and so we need to be, be, be uh, mindful of that. But our, our bodies are part of, of worship. And I just think we need to be reminded that, that we're not so casual with our bodies in our, in our quiet times and, you know, when we're in, in corporate worship and things to think that that part of it doesn't matter. It, it does matter. It does matter. Um, and, and again, as long as it's authentic or the, the, the intention is even, you know, to be authentic before the Lord, like we shouldn't be inhibited, you know, by our cultural norms. Um, we also need to be careful, you know, that, you know, my worship of the Lord is not overly, you know, in, in going to distract other other people, like you know, if if you really need to run some laps, you know, you can run those laps in your own in your own house, you know. Um, at that time, I mean, it would be rare that that thing would be, um, you know, something that would be appropriate. But but I won't say it, it could never be appropriate. I wouldn't say that. I mean, remember, you know, David, King David, when they're bringing the the uh, ark back into the city and. And he's, you know, he's dancing a jig, um, and and you know he's he's full of excitement, and so I think there's a place, you know, with our emotions. Like God made us emotional. There's a time for we're going to see this even in, in this passage this morning. There's a time for joy. There's a time for celebration. There's a time to weep. There's a time to stand up and have your arms in the air, and there's a time to have your face on the ground. You know, and all of these things are are appropriate because the you know the circumstances that are at play and what the Lord has placed on our hearts, um, and sometimes we need some some help and some direction on what's appropriate, as we will see, um, as we will see here. So, remember the the book is read 
And as the book is read, you know, they stand up. And I just want to encourage us, um, you know, just uh, all the times in your, in your quiet time, you, you know, it, it can help with focus. If you stand up and you read the scripture out loud, you know, if you're dealing with distraction, um, you know, then, then do that. That can help you. And it's a, it, we see it in the scripture. It's an appropriate, it's an appropriate thing. Um, in prayer to, to bow down, we should probably do those things with our, um, I don't know everybody's habits, but do those things more um, is what I would think. So let's go to verse 7. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebi, Jamin, Echab, Shabbatai, Hodajai, Messiahai, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hannah, Peleah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So there was reading and there was instruction. And we're not fully given how that happened. Did these people take turns, um, you know, instructing everyone, or did they go into, you know, kind of like, we're going to read this, and it's almost like we have these smaller groups of people where different you know, Levites are, are going to the different groups and, you know, ans- explaining and answering questions and, and that sort of thing. But there was the reading of the word and then there was, you know, people, people needed some help um, beyond just the reading of the word. They needed that in, instruction. Um, and we see that throughout, you know, the, the scripture, um, that the reading is important and then... Um, helping people to understand the sense of it and, and the purpose of it um, is, is often necessary. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priests and the scribes, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So it, it's interesting because normally, and we're going to see it here later, normally, you know, when people are, are weeping at the reading of the law, you don't interrupt that. Normally you're like, let the conviction take its course, right? But in this case, the leader said, no, you know, stop crying, stop weeping. Today's a, 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 not a day for that. And he said to them in verse 10, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions, and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers, houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feasts of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of olive trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate 
and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So let's talk about that for a minute. So they're reading the law. They're in the, in, in their calendar. They're in the seventh month. And for them, this is like, it falls in the September, October, in the fall. Um, well, for us, fall. Um, you know, time period. Um, so that's the time of year it is um, for, for them. And as they're reading, they read about this instruction that was given through Moses to the people in Leviticus chapter 23 um, that they should make these, have this feast of, of tabernacles, so they're going to make these booths. It says booths there. It's like, just think of it as tents. These temporary structures, they're not designed to, to last a long time. Kind of like going camping, you know, is, is, is great. Most, you know, we make them better now, but most of the time tents aren't designed to live in 365 days a year, right? You know, that's going to be kind of rough. For, for a, a week or a weekend, you know, it can be a, a fun, <laughs> you know, activity, but not necessarily something you want on a, on a permanent, you know, basis. But... This is why, Leviticus 23, verse 42, it says, You shall dwell in booths for seven days, and all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So they were supposed to do this as a remembrance that they had been slaves in Egypt as a people for 400 years they come out of that slavery, but before they go to the promised land, they are in living in, in tents. They are living in temporary you know, structures as they, as they travel. And so this was to remind them of two things. One, who God is and God's redemption and salvation for them. And two, who they are. That they are ones who had once been slaves, who had been freed and given their own place. And this is something that they were supposed to Remember, but from the time of Joshua up until now, you have this sad thing that they had for, forgotten to, to remember in the way that they were instructed to remember. And it's just interesting how you know they had kept they kept other days and other things that they were supposed to keep according you know to the traditions that they were given, but that one they had just kind of let fall by. The wayside, but it was important because it was, you know, it's a connection to their history, to their past. Reminds them of who God is and, and who they are. And, and really, if you think about it, you know, today the, the ordinances that we're given in terms of baptism it reminds us who God is and who we are in Christ. Reminds you, you know, when you. When a person is, you know, we're going to have baptism this next you know, Sunday. When a person goes into the water, it reminds them, you know, you're, you're going to be, you know, buried with Christ. The, the old you has been buried in Christ. The new you is risen. You know, you're a new creation in Jesus. We take the bread and the cup and we're reminded of, of the great salvation of our God and 
of who we would be without him and we're, we're you know, forced to kind of confront, am I living in a way that is worthy of my king? Because I used to be a slave to sin. And now I'm a free person in Jesus. So throughout the scripture, everything that God gives people, and he, you know, there's different things for the nation of Israel at, at different points in their history than there are, you know, like for us today um, in the church. But everything the Lord gives us to do, you know, you have a common, a common theme. It reminds people of who God is and of who they are. And that's what we have today. It reminds us of who God is and who we were and who we are. And who we will be. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Because we know our Christ, our King, Jesus our King will return. Um, And so we move to chapter 9. Making good progress. Um, And this isn't isn't too long here. So let's read in chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Now, I I find this interesting because, you know, usually we go from like mourning and weeping to rejoicing. And in this case, they go from rejoicing to mourning and weeping. But I think it had to do with the time um, of the month and that, that it was important for them to celebrate that Feast of Tabernacle at the right you know, time and to do what the, what the law had instructed. And that, um, that, w- that week was designed to be a week of celebration. It wasn't designed to be a week of, of mourning. But now we've still got some things left over to deal with. And so now it's time to deal with that. And so it says they're assembled with fasting and sackcloth, so that's uncomfortable to put on, and with dust on their heads. It's in, I mean, everything about that is intentionally uncomfortable. Not eating is uncomfortable. That clothing is going to be rough and itchy on the skin. That's uncomfortable. Dust on your head is uncomfortable. Like, this is the opposite of a day at the spa. Like, the exact opposite. Verse 2, Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. I want to make a comment on that because that's important. Because, you know, it can sound exclusionary. But in this case, that is proper. It would be wrong for, for me to go to another family and say, you know, you need to confess my family's sins with me. Like that wouldn't be right. You know, that would be that that, that would be kind of a that'd be a pretty wrong thing to do. Hey, your people had nothing to do with this in our in you know our our family's history, but you need to put on you need to fast and put on sackcloth and ashes and dust on your head and weep. Well, that that wouldn't be right. You know, they need to own their own sin. They need to own their own sin. 
Then those of Israelite lineage, so it says they separated themselves from all foreigners, they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And that is just such a powerful thing because when, when people are going to be in right relationship with God, they have to acknowledge that they have been wrong. And not only that, but their parents, grandparents, etc. have been wrong, potentially. Potentially, there's a, there's a lot with that. Do you see what I'm saying? You know, it's like... They have to say, because what they had to do, because if you look at Israel's history up to this point, reason that they were in captivity, because they had taken on false gods. They had taken on false religion and were worshiping that false religion as if it was true. So imagine this. In order for them to be right with God, people, some people have got to say things like, Mama was wrong. They say things like, Mama was wrong. Daddy was wrong. Grandma was wrong. Granddad was wrong. Like, think about that. That's significant. I mean, to take on what they had to do, I, I want you to think, you know, for a minute. Even if your family, even if your, your parents were right, or your grandparents were right, in terms of, of worshiping the Lord in spirit and the truth, Imagine sitting there and acknowledging and going, Mom was wrong. Dad was wrong. Grandma was wrong. Granddad was wrong. That's what they had to do. You know, a lot, I mean, different ones of them had to do that. Everybody who had people in their families who worshiped false gods, false idols. That's, that's, that was hard. My point is saying that it was hard. Now, some of you have had to do that. Some of you have had to say, in order for me to, to have Jesus as Savior as King, as Jesus as Savior and King, I had to acknowledge that my parents didn't have a right understanding of God. That my grandparents didn't have a right understanding of God. How many ever generations back didn't have a right understanding of God? There's a couple of things that we can say with that. One is that in every family... If you go back far enough, you have people who did not have a right understanding of God. Who were not in relationship with God, who were wrong. Period. It's true in my family, that's true in your family. It shouldn't be a... I mean, I understand it hurts, but it shouldn't necessarily be offensive. Because it's logical. And at the same time, if you go back far enough, everybody has people in their family who worship God correctly. Because we're all connected to Noah. We're all connected to Adam and Eve, ultimately. We all have the same first parents. It's just a matter at what point in your families, in your family lineage, back all the way to Adam and Eve, did people break off away from a correct understanding and worship of God? And at what points they got onto the right track. And so, you know, it's very possible if you look through that whole line that you have fractures off and then back on and fractures off and then back on and fractures off and back on. What's the best thing that we can do and we can encourage others to do? 
set up the future, your future generations, make it easier for them to be right with God by worshiping God correctly yourself. And I know in our pluralistic world, people don't want to hear that there's a right way and a wrong way to worship God. Or that there's a right God, there's a true and living God, and that other gods are false. But that is the claim of, this, of, the, of the scripture. You know, to take, the, to take the scripture at all is to take that reality. And what I encourage people with is, I, mean, I just keep going back to Jesus and I say, if somebody can show me someone better than Jesus, can, can you show me anyone better than Jesus? I was having a conversation with somebody of a particular um, religion not too long ago, and we were talking about it, and he was, you know, all about his, you know, being the, you know, the best. And I just said, well, if you can show me anyone better than Jesus, you know, I, I challenge you to try to find, you know, compare and find better than Jesus. Yeah, you know, we can, we can go there. <laughs> we can go there on that. Um, we have nothing. To be ashamed of. We also have only one to be proud of. His name is Jesus. We'll boast in him and in nothing else. That's what Paul says. That's what the scripture tells us to do. But it is, it comes back, it is Jesus. Jesus is our one. But there has to be an acknowledgement, you know, that happens all the time, and that's and that's that's difficult for people, and it, and it's something that people weep about, and understandably so, understandably so. There's been um, stories in in missions where you have kind of, and we call it like a mass conversion, like almost the majority of like a a group of people coming to the Lord at once, and there's this like celebration of we have Jesus, and then there's that understanding of, but those who were before us were so wrong in what they thought and did, and there's a, a weeping, and then there's again rejoicing that they are in Christ, and so there's that um, that that pattern is not uncommon. That pattern is not uncommon. And then, you know, that's on, you know, your heart for those who, you know, those of us who have family members who don't know the Lord, and it's on our hearts that they would know the Lord. And this time of, time of year when we have family celebrations and you have Thanksgiving and you have Christmas and you have opportunity to be around, you know, those people and to share the light of Christ and, and to pray for them. And you hope that, you know, they'll, they'll see and understand the greatness of Jesus. what they could have in Jesus. Because listen to this. As they had separated themselves and they're confessing their sins. And verse 3, and they says, And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So there's some hours of reading. There's some hours of Confession. Then Jeshua, verse 4, Jeshua, Bani, Kedmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, 
and Taniah stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kamdil, Bani, Hashabiah, Shershabiah, Hodajiah, Shebaniah, Shebaniah, and Bethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. There's an acknowledgement of who God is. In verse 7, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant to give him the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against all his servants and against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them so that when they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light of the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws good statutes and commandments. You made them known you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst, and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to them. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of all king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of the heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do to them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of goods. 
cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat, and then lighted themselves in your great goodness. Uh, let's stop there just for a moment because those are all the blessings that Israel received. And, you know, there can be a question there sometimes of like, well, what about these other people who were there and what happened to them? And was that just, we need to remember back to what, um, you know, God told them, you know, that it wasn't because of their righteousness that they were given that place, but of the people who lived there, those, their inhabitants because of their wickedness. And, you know, outside we have the biblical resources, but outside of the biblical resources, we have other historical resources that make it very clear that the wickedness of the people who live in those places at that time and the human sacrifice, <coughs> human sacrifice that they that they committed, and even you know the sacrificing of children. They murdered their own children in in um, giving them to their gods. So that's reason, you know, and, and God instructed them, God instructed um, the Israelites that they were given that land because of that. But if they did wickedly, the land would also spit them out as well. And because of their wickedness is why they were in this whole mess in the first place and being in exile in Babylon. And then as the Persian Empire took over the Babylonian Empire, um, they are now under that, and they're gonna, and that's going to become clear here as we continue to read. But just really wanted, um, just really needed to make that point this morning, so we remember again the historical context. Um, verse twenty-six. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies, who oppressed them, and in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Think judges. But after they had rest, they, they again did evil before you. Again, think judges, the book of Judges. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly, and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them, and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen." Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenants and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings, nor our princes, nor priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them, 
or in the large and rich land which you have set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers, to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So again, they acknowledge that God is righteous and that they have been wicked. That they, you know, and they're owning their their individual sins, but in, in a larger sense, their collective, you know, sins as a nation and the sins of their fathers. Again, that's a tough thing to acknowledge, but they knew that they had to do that in order to move forward. They had to acknowledge the truth of the past in order to confess the sins of the past in the present day so that they could have a better future. You know, this, this is a, a, just a great example on a large scale of what happens when an individual comes to believe in Jesus. There's the acknowledgement of my past is sinful or was sinful. I had grieved and offended a holy God. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Acknowledging who God is, acknowledging who Christ is, and that he died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead, and there's a, a belief in him and an asking of him to, to, to take away all of that from the past and to, to give a new life, to give one salvation, forgiveness, from the penalty of sin. And then with that comes an acknowledgement of Jesus, you know, now, now you're my king and I'm going to submit my life to you and I'm going to live for you. Like when somebody truly takes Jesus as savior, they also take him as king, right? You're not just saying, hey, I just don't want to be in trouble anymore. But there's a humbleness of... Yeah, Lord, your way is better than mine, and I need to follow you, and I need to submit my life to you. That's going to happen at that same you know, time. Now, you know, we, don't, we don't teach a, a type of salvation that is, again, dependent on works and a person's ability to, to do certain things. And we're not saying a person isn't going to fail or sin anymore, but the, the attitude and perspective is certainly different, right? I mean, the attitude is now, I, I don't want all that anymore. I want Jesus. You know, if a person says, well, Lord, forgive me for what I've done, but I want to keep, you know, but I want to keep doing it tomorrow, and there's no intention of change, like, that's not, we're just playing games at that point. There's an intention of, Lord, I do want to follow you and do things your way. And sometimes, you know, a person, because of, their, of, of the ignorance of their life, um, you know, they come to know Jesus and they really believe in him, and, you know, they're still doing some things that don't honor the Lord, 
but they don't even know. Like, you know, the Lord is gracious. They kind of like, here, let me show you this thing in your life that needs to change. Okay, we got a little bit of handle on that. Now let me show you this next thing. So that the person's not completely overwhelmed. I mean, sometimes it happens, you know, almost all at once. And other times it's like, you know, somebody's like, I mean, I'll just go ahead. I'll use my wife as an example of that. She comes to know Jesus. And she's, you know, telling some other girls, you know, I really don't think these, you know, using these words is a big deal. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's like bad to, to cuss or whatever. I mean, whatever. You know, and then she's reading the Bible, and it says, you know, don't, no, no unholy communication. Come out of your mouth. You know, well, I guess I was wrong about that. <laughs> but, you know, that Holy Spirit is going to convict. The Holy Spirit is going to convict and use his scripture to teach us and to form us and to grow us as you know, we move forward. But there's that change, that fundamental perspective of God is right. You know, that's one of the main things that changes is like, whatever God says, like, God is right. So if I'm different, if I have view it differently than God, who does that make wrong? Me. You know, that's one of the fundamental things that changes. God is always right. And if we disagree, I'm the one who's wrong. Not God. That's one of the fundamental things that changes. But they realize... You know, we're in this land. It's a beautiful land. It produces so much. And they says, but these other kings you have set over us because of our sins and they have dominion over us. It says, you know, we're, we're slaves, basically. Some are in greater slavery than others. Some are like literal slaves, like having to serve in, you know, people's homes and on people's land. Others are slaves in the sense of, you know, they don't have... As a nation, they're enslaved. They, they don't control their own destiny. They don't have autonomy. They are subservient to a kingdom which they have to pay tribute to. And if you don't pay enough, bad things happen. Well, that's, um, they have dominion over us and our cattle at their pleasure. What they can do is they say, Hey, last, last time we asked for 10%, and this year we want 15, and next year we want 20, and the year after that, and they can take whatever they want. I mean, they can change it radically. They go, hey, this year we're taking half your animals. We're just taking half. Those are going with us. And, and people are, are somewhat powerless to do anything you know, about that. But because of all of this, because of all this, because of all what, okay, their current situation, yes. The law, yes. Their history, yes. Who God is, yes. Because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So they collectively decided you know, now, we're going to live this way. We're going to live this way. In a sense, it might not be as formalized as this. But, you know, every, every individual, 
by default, by whatever. It's saying, you know, I'm going to live life this way. However you're living life right now, it's kind of how you've decided to live life. I'm living life this way. Now, you can make a big change because you can say, in light of all of this, you can consider the scriptures. You can consider the scripture, you can consider God, consider the culture, consider your current state, you consider all these things and go, based on all this, I'm going to make some changes and I'm going to do, I'm going to do things this way now. You know, a lot of times people do that. They start to think about that at the end of a year. New Year's resolution. And they're going to think, well, I'm going to do these things. And, you know, we know how those... This isn't a New Year's resolution. This is much more serious than that. Because a lot of times New Year's resolutions last two to three weeks. But this is a covenant with a seal. I mean, they've made commitments and promises. Like, they are, they are deep into this. And there's been a process to get there of mourning and weeping and sackcloth and ashes. I mean, like, this is a real, this has real potential, okay? This is a real potential. But also, you know, generations decide, you know, we're going to live this way. It doesn't mean that there's any great revival. It just means a generation of followers of Jesus just decide, kind of by default, we're, we're going to live according to this set of expectations, but there's points in church history where groups of people get together and there's real revival along the lines of what you see here. And then they do things radically different than what had been done before them. It's a collective. There's at least a, there's enough people to have to make a difference in, in the larger culture, larger church culture, larger world society but as we've seen that doesn't carry over automatically to the next generation or to the one after that it may last one more kind of as a carryover but it certainly won't go to the third that third has to make its own way that third generation will have to say that's not just tradition for us but we've decided we're doing things this way We see that in church history too. Welsh revival. My, my dates are right, early 1900s. I mean, folks, anywhere the word was preached, there was no room. Anywhere. People looking through windows, doors open, crowds of people on the outsides, just trying to hear the word. Prayers, revival, I mean, real revival. It's not that way today. Buildings shut down. A few old people trying to keep the lights on. That's all there is. I haven't checked recently enough to say that's all there is, but when I was, was there not too long, well, not that long ago, that's all there was. That's all there was. Three generations. Three gen- you can go three generations and go from huge revival to basically nothing. You know, it's, it's something you've got to keep the fires burning. 
how we do that in our own hearts. We've got to be sincere, we've got to pray, we've got to work. We've got to keep things going. We talk about, you know, sometimes I think we like to be optimistic, and we talk about the churches planted every year, but a lot of churches close on our doors every year, too. Um, you know, we're not, we're not net gaining on that. Um, and we, we, need to, we need to be careful. And we need to be intent um, on the Lord's work moving forward. Here's what you and I can control, folks. Our own faithfulness. We can control the faithfulness in our individual hearts, and we can control the faithfulness of this local church. And that matters. That matters big time. That matters big time. So let's be about that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you that your word is truth and that it is powerful. And Lord, in your timing, we pray for a great move of hearts. But Lord, for us, we pray always that our hearts would be tender and close to you. Lord, help us not to have hard hearts and become stiff-necked, but to always humble ourselves before you because you are great and you are worthy. Help our pride not to be a hindrance. As we take the bread and the cup this morning, we give you thanks. Dear Jesus, that you humbled yourself and you showed us the path of humility. Help us to be humble people before you, God. Help us to be people who are quick to confess, quick to repent, slow to anger, quick to obey, slow to be stubborn, quick to hear your voice. Lord, help us to be faithful. Because Jesus, you are worthy of all the glory and honor. You are worthy of our whole lives. And we pray these things in your precious name.